0: Today's episode is brought to you by Destiny O'Birdsong's Negotiations, a collection of poems that Elizabeth Acevedo describes as full of wonder. Says Chakira Diaz, Negotiations is an intimate, stunning collection. Destiny O'Birdsong's poems examine systems of power and oppression, violence, complicity. These poems are desire, survival, the body, rage, Vulnerability, a fierce celebration of black womanhood. Adds Donica Kelly, the terms of Destiny Birdsong's negotiations are scalding and tender. Birdsong excavates a national history and her speakers' personal histories, tracks how their intersections and aftermaths wreck havoc in the woman who survives. But Birdsong's negotiations endgame is not simply survival. It aims to flourish. Negotiations is out now from Tin House. Today's conversation has existed in my anticipatory imagination for many years now. As I mentioned at the beginning of it, I don't miss a chance to see Natalie Diaz read and speak on her work. And so in a way, she's been preparing me for this conversation long before it was on both of our calendars as something for me to prepare for. An added bonus is that in our collective ongoing brainstorm about who listener supporters of the show would most like to see as future guests of Between the Covers, it is Natalie's name that comes up over and over again. So I'm happy to say that we've arrived, that the future is now, and we are now able to spend an extended time with Natalie and her practice in words and in the world. When I was brainstorming what to suggest she might read for the bonus audio archive, I knew that she had a fondness for Jorge Luis Borges's poetry, something that isn't read nearly as much as his other work. But she decided to do something even better. For the bonus archive, she reads from Borges's bestiary the Book of Imaginary Beings, introducing us to three of these beasts and talking about the way Borges disrupts history and why that is important. If that isn't enough of an enticement to transform yourself from a listener of Between the Covers to a listener supporter, recently several past guests of the show have offered some really amazing things to future supporters of the show. I haven't had the chance to get them all up on the site yet, but here are some of the ones that are now available up on Patreon. Sophia Samatar has offered a sold-out and thus unavailable hand-sewn chapbook of her story Meet Me in Iram and a story by her speculative fiction comrade Cat Howard, Those Are Pearls a chapbook they've already mailed between themselves in anticipation of this so that it is signed by both of them. Aro Kwan and Sheila Hetty have offered their own versions of a consultation to answer a writer's questions about writing and the writing process. Viki now has offered a consultation and feedback on a poem. Molly Crabapple has offered signed copies of both of her books Drawing Blood, and Brothers of the Gun, a perfect duo for someone interested in image text or the intersection of social justice journalism, literary writing, and illustration. And Carmen Maria Machado is offering signed copies of the British edition of her latest book, In the Dream House. All of this is on top of the usual perks and enticements. So to hear about imaginary beasts or to claim one of these generous gifts from past guests, or to find out other benefits of becoming a supporter of Between the Covers, most notably to me, that you are essentially ensuring that the show steps into the future on solid footing, head over to patreon.com the Covers. Enjoy today's program with Natalie Diaz.
1: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's guest is poet and linguist, Natalie Diaz. Diaz earned her undergraduate degree and her MFA in poetry at Old Dominion University. Diaz is an enrolled member of the Gila River Indian community, and has worked with the last speakers of the Mojave language, where she directed their language revitalization program. Diaz is also a former professional basketball player, point guard at Old Dominion, a team that made it to the NCAA Sweet 16 three times and the Final Four once during her tenure, and she played professional basketball in Europe and Asia prior to pursuing her degree in poetry. Diaz is currently the Maxine and Jonathan Marshall Chair in Modern and Contemporary Poetry and Director of the Center for Imagination in the Borderlands at Arizona State University. She has also been an ambassador for the University of Arizona's Art for Justice Project, which commissions work from writers who are addressing the issue of mass incarceration. Natalie Diaz's 2012 debut collection of poetry from Copper Canyon Press, When My Brother Was an Aztec, was a winner of the American Book Award, and was a finalist for the Penn Open Book Award. Diaz's writing has appeared everywhere from The New Yorker to ESPN. It has garnered a Pushcart Prize, the Narrative Prize for Poetry, the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, otherwise known as the Genius Grant, a Lannan Literary Fellowship, and a Native Arts Council Foundation Artist Fellowship, among many others. She's also the editor of Bodies Built for Game, the Prairie Schooner Anthology of Contemporary Sports Writing, which includes writing by Luis Erdrich, Hanif Abdurraqib, Terence Hayes, Claudia Rankin, Roger Reeves, Fatima Ashkar, and many others. Natalie Diaz is here today on Between the Covers for her much anticipated follow up to When My Brother Was an Aztec, her latest poetry collection from Greywolf called Post Colonial Love Poem, a collection that is one of five finalists. For the National Book Award in Poetry this year. Booklist, in its starred review, calls Postcolonial Love Poem a groundbreaking and unparalleled lyric work. Poet and editor John Freeman calls it a breakthrough collection and says In a world where nothing feels so conservative as a love poem, Diaz takes the form and smashes it to smithereens, building something all her own, a kind of love poem that can allow history and culture and the anguish of ancestors to flow through and around the poet as she addresses her beloved. Amelia Phillips says in the New York Times Book Review, Diaz's collection is no doubt one of the most important poetry releases in years, one to applaud for its considerable demonstration of skill, its resistance to dominant perspectives, and its light wrought of desire. Finally, Louise Erdrich says, With tenacious wit, ardor, and something I can only call magnificence, Diaz speaks of the consuming need we have for one another. This is a book for any time, but especially a book for this time, these days, and who knows for how long, we can only touch a trusted small number of people. Diaz brings depth and resonance to the fact that this has always been so. Be prepared to journey down a wild river. Welcome to Between the Covers, Natalie Diaz.
1: Gracias for having me and for that generous um, that generous opening. It feels like it feels like now we're here with other people, so it's you know doesn't have to just just be me here uh, in front of you. Yeah. But yeah. Gracias.
0: Well, over the past ten years, I've tried to never miss an opportunity to see you read. And one of the things I've always appreciated about your readings and lectures is the way you often bring up a word that you distrust, a word that often, I think, comes with a lot of goodwill attached to it. So one time it might be the word sustainability, another time it might be truth or empathy or citizen. So it seems like a good place to start our conversation by looking at the words in in the title of the collection. And I, I wanted to start with your thoughts or what thoughts come to mind when you employ the words post-colonial love.
1: I think a lot about uh, post-colonial itself. And of course, love, um, love is one given to us all very early. You know, uh, you should love this person or you, you know, most importantly and detrimentally, you shouldn't love this person or, um, you know, what that means. It's, both of these words for me are are compelling because they are both so generic. You know, I was told love, but was never really uh, told about its capaciousness or how I might exist in it. And so I knew it was something I should aspire to as a type of goodness. And I also began to realize uh, when I was disallowed from entering it, you know, this kind of, um, the profane that it was love was inside the temple and I was perpetually, you know, outside the temple. And post-colonial is again, you know, it's it's the condition I think of language for, for many natives or many indigenous peoples is that we should be engaging with post-colonial, decolonial in some way. Um, and those words, I guess I have I have a great gift of poetry in that it gives me time to relocate myself or the people I love in a language. When I think about postcolonial, I don't know that we off- I don't know that we know what it means because it shouldn't mean something. It-, it should be a series of acts or practices or a way that I encounter and move my body or the way that I encounter others and respect or honor, their bodies in some way. And, and for me to set those together, I mean, it was, it it came up tongue in cheek, to be honest. You know, I was, because the love poem is a place that, that I wander in often, that I return to often, you know, that I, uh, I find some of my, like, I, I guess what I find in the love poem is a place that's not the future. It's not the past. It's, it's not now. It's, it's a place that that can't be confined in that way because in some ways it's the ecstatic. And is the ecstatic outside of the body? Is it inside the body? Well, in some ways, the idea of the love poem to me is an energy much larger than I am. Yeah. Like in some ways I think the energy of the world that has made itself that the literal world from cosmos to dirt to mountain, that to me feels very ecstatic. Um, and so I guess setting those two things side by side happened because I was having a conversation and I don't know who the conversation was with. It, it's often with my friend Roger or, you know, uh, my partner, but I, we were talking about the, you know, a poem. And I was like, well, I guess, I guess all of my poems are post-colonial in some way. And, and we were just kind of laughing a little bit about, about that possibility. Um, but yeah. And I mean, I guess that's for me, that's like the luck And the question of and the desire that language inspires in me or offers me is that words are words are just symbols. And the real the real in the real interaction I have with language is not that a word means something, but what I might do in relationship to that word on my way toward it or in my misunderstanding of it or in the ways it was handed
0: to me. I wanted to ask you about-
1: i lo- <laughs> sorry, my answers, are, my answers are long, I know- No, that's a great uh, answer. I love I'm that answer. For, I'm a nightmare for interviews. No,
0: no, this is the place for long answers and you'll see some long questions too. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about love in relationship to a, a conversation you were recently in about translation and democracy where you talked about the sensuality of what we don't or can't know of the other and about your interest in what can't or shouldn't be translated. And I wondered if you saw love in that light, uh, a place where the unknowable doesn't necessarily become known, doesn't become translated, but but rather is, is welcome to coexist on its own terms.
1: I really appreciate that question because it, it feels very... It, I guess what I mean is that question feels very generous to me because it's a place I'm, I'm wandering in that space and trying to make sense of it or, or maybe not trying to make sense of it, but trying to, uh, trying to continue discovering in that space, in the space of that question. And, and, um, I'm going to bring in my partner and I's relationship because this is a place where I've been thinking like, so you know I'm a poet my book is out all of these things are happening and there's a way that I've just I've realized that language yes it's a part of me and it's important to me but I'm having a really hard time just like stepping in and talking about craft you know it's not that I don't I'm not engaged in what is a line break I, but I'm only engaged in it in terms of how it catalyzes or energizes or what the energy of of a word or a language can do in that respect and so for me, thinking in this way about, you know, when I think about poetry, I guess what I'm thinking about is what is the language that's meaningful for me? Some of it does go into my poetry, yet the greater body of that language happens far outside of poetry. Mm. And when I'm thinking about, you know, ideas of translation, I'm thinking a lot, like many of us are, about knowledge. What is knowledge? Who who determines the value of knowledge? once that value is determined, who then determines how it is disseminated and to whom it's disseminated. And for me, thinking of of knowledge as, I mean, the way knowledge exists, I think it's the very nature of the word. It's a word I don't trust. The very nature of the word implies that it can be extracted. It can be um, consumed. It can be again made sense of, and it can uh, it can be made to have value. We see that we see that in a very different way than we've seen it before. Right now, in the language of of the political, or the language of the public, or the language of Twitter. Um, but when I think about when I'm thinking about these knowledges, and and there are many there are many indigenous artists who speak about this, um, visual artists, and you know who I spend a lot of time in their work and the ways they write about their work, but the the importance of having a knowledge that I don't have to translate. And most importantly, that does, that can't be translated. Like that, that to me is an intimacy that uh, maybe intimacy is not the right word. I guess the basic, the basic ways I'm thinking about this is that, because we live in America, because the the power of, of Western, Western structures of democracy, of empire, of nation, government, all of these things, um, because they have uh, created this system in which they decide, you know, what knowledge is based on if they can take it, right? So, like indigenous bodies of knowledges. So we have like indigenous knowledge systems, things like that. They're so important to resist what is academic knowledge or these many centers of knowledge because, because they're, they're knowledges that can't be taken and they can't be taken because the, the people who try to extract them from the communities don't understand them. And so you know, knowledge has this terrible power of this terrible power structure of if I can take it from you, then it's valuable. But if I can't, then it doesn't mean anything. And this is the way we've pushed so many knowledges out. This is the, this is why we don't let indigenous peoples into certain conversations. This is why we don't want uh, queer, trans, non-binary, non-gender conforming peoples in conversations. This is why we don't want black farmers and conversations and it's because the the kind of white system of knowledge that the western system of knowledge couldn't take it and, and do or make something of it to to reiterate itself and 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 so for me that whatever questions I can form from that have been extremely important and 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 the language that matters to me most right now is the language that my partner and I are making in our home. And it's not an easy language. My partner is black. I'm indigenous and Latina or Mexican. Uh, we're both queer. We're out in the middle of this little desert town on my reservation. And, and that private language that we have in our home, feels the most important to me. We're, we are both poets, so there's a certain way that we pull some of that language into our work and in ways that we don't. And 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 to me, we have a knowledge with each other that other people might not understand. And, and importantly, my partner knows experiences, you know, knowledges that I will never understand. And I don't, I have no desire to consume those things. And, and, and I think that's, we've moved away from that because knowledge has been so knowledge is a product, right? Not knowledge is currency. It's, you know, even now I'm in, I'm in academia. And so there are certain things that must be translated to show my institution that I am accomplishing something or I am successful in something. And, and so what that means is we assume we can translate everything and that I can know everything like, Oh, what are you doing? Well, okay. I can know, tell me about that. And now I know it, but what I, I believe one of the things that's missing, and I believe that this is why returning to very old and indigenous relationships and knowledges is, is so important right now. And, and by indigenous, I don't just mean what we call native. I mean, any peoples who've had relationships with the land, uh, who've learned from the land and who've been shaped by it in some way is that like what makes us who we are, are the knowledges that we can't translate to somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's, it's, it's really difficult to protect those knowledges because of the society we live in. Yet those knowledges will be the ones that if anything saves us, whatever saving means to somebody, it will be those. It will be the fact that I do not know what it's like to be a, a black queer woman, which is a knowing my partner has. She does not know what it's like to be a uh, native, a Mojave, you know, um Camelot, you know, Mexican queer woman. And that doesn't mean we won't build our own knowledges together, but it's important that we are, that we might not understand each other. Like, I really believe in misunderstanding or not understanding. I think it's one of the, the most natural states of our being. And yet, and yet here we are together, you know, and, and here we are and living in that tension and and that it really is that tension where we exist as, as kind of a, a third or a fourth entity. Um, That's, that's a really long, it's a really long answer, but it also feels important to me in terms of the ideas of love and ecstasy like I do think love is a not knowing I think that it is uh the willingness or the ability or the luck of being in the space between what we know of one another and and again very valuably what we don't know about one another and yet can still be alongside
0: well, I love what you're saying in relationship to my relationship to the cover of the book, because it feels like the cover is the is sort of a the perfect embodiment of some of what you're saying in the sense that are you revealing your face? Are you in the process of revealing your face on the cover or are you in the process of concealing your face on the cover? Um, maybe both, maybe neither. And then the blurriness of your hand, which, maybe that's making visible that space between us you're the, the the making of eye contact but also making visible the the distance at the same time i don't know if that's anything behind what this this portrait is but it certainly is what i thought of and it doesn't feel knowable the it doesn't feel it feels like there are multiple answers or maybe no answers
1: i like what you said it, like, it doesn't feel knowable and and the the term that i've used uh Lately, and I'm one of those people. I, I cycle through words because sometimes I find a word, and it's the change I needed. And I spend time in that word, and the word doesn't change enough for me. So then I have to find a new set of of words. Um, but but right now, the a word that's really important to me is uh, unpinable, mm. and I've referenced it a, a few times in conversations, but. It, the importance of being unpinnable, especially for a person like me and the, the photos on the book were part of a self portrait project that I did. Um, and originally I was asked to re- respond, respond, reply, react. Those are always awful words when, you know, when you're asking a, an indigenous person, like, can you please respond to this or react to this? But it was Edward Curtis's some large number of an anniversary. Um, you know, of, of their work in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, they were very thoughtful in, in bringing in indigenous voices to respond to that. And Edward Curtis had taken photos of Mojave's. In fact, one of the most famous photos, which I've recently seen on books that are not about Mojave's and is, um, uh, they called her Moha or sometimes, um, uh, Mu, or, you know, they basically got her name wrong, and, and it, it was not her name, it was her clan name, you know, and so the clan name was uh, Ma, and there, so there's this picture of this, this young girl, and then, of course, many other natives, but as people know, Edward Curtis would often dress you in other, other people's regalia or other people's, you know, quote, artifacts, um, and then they were required to stand still to be pinned down by his projection of what he wanted people to know of what he thought of natives. you know. So of course it was like, I'm trying to capture this moment so that as we move forward, we don't lose this moment. Yeah. And that's the typical American way of, of thinking about natives. We're always a footnote. Even so much modern contemporary um, literature is You know, I don't know how many times I've seen a line such as this that says, um, and our native brothers and sisters or, and, and we're on unceded territory or, and we're on, you know, stolen land as if that acknowledges us in any way. And, and really by doing that, that's saying we don't exist, Mm -hmm. exist only in that past. And so when I was interacting with those photos, um, one, I'm, a, I'm a, I wouldn't even say I'm a budding photographer. I love images. I love reading about photography. I've never taken any kind of, uh, uh, training or course with this, but, um, what I did with these photos, what I wanted to do with these photos is to be unknown, like, as you're saying, to be unpinnable. And so one of the goals was that how can I take some of what is normally a marker of being indigenous? Like even the bangs, I feel like if someone wants you to to know that they're indigenous, they'll cut their bangs real blunt or something Mm -hmm. Um, because we often do that. But in every one of the photos, I wore a quote artifact. So I was wearing some, like my my tribe does beadwork. So I was wearing the collars or the bracelets with our our Mojave colors in them. And so in the photos, what I was trying to do was, if there was a focus on anything i wanted it to be just on that artifact in recognition of that's an artifact i am not and so how do i stay beyond that and he also has a lot of photos where it seemed as if he was trying to put the women in a position of being kind of coy yeah. so maybe they had a slight smile on their face and so for me you know i the way i set up the cameras i wanted to make sure my body was In motion and that the the image was very clearly unable to capture that motion to kind of defy again or disallow some of the photos but but yeah I I think you're exactly right in terms of thinking about it as the unknowable like I didn't want there to be a projection able to be made where someone could say this is what I think of indigenous peoples or this is what I think of, of natives
0: let me ask you another uh language specific question in the sense that when you often when you're giving public readings and talks you begin with some words in mojave and then you follow those words with spanish and then we hear words in english and yet the the poetry itself is inverted in this sense most of the words are in english there are occasional words in spanish and very rarely Almost never there are, are there words in Mojave. And I wondered um, if this decision not to employ Mojave words in the context of the poems themselves is related in some way to um, allowing the unknowable or allowing the untranslatable um, through with withholding the words.
1: So Mojave is still very physical to me. It's still very much my land and my home and and some of that is for traumatic reasons right there aren't many people who i can speak with um there you know if i want to speak in mojave i talk with my teacher if he wants to speak in mojave the number of people he can speak with is not high Mm -hmm. and even my you know my quote, fluency or ability, which we don't usually talk about in in indigenous revitalization because it it really doesn't, you know, it's, if there was any measure, it it is the measure that says America and other nations or empires tried to, you know, wipe us off the face of the earth. And the first thing they did was still our ways of speaking to and of one another. That's the only measure. And so to come in and think about who can speak, who speaks well, who speaks fluently is, it's the least important and it's someone else's measurement on us. Um, and, you know, like just one example, I, and, and, you know, my my teacher, his name is uh, Amat Chumich Mahakev or Hubert McCord. And he is our last bird singer. He's, he's one of my best friends. He's funny. He's like, it's, it, we're kind of an unlikely relationship and we're also like perfect together. And he's, he's also my relative. But one day I came in and, you know, he was telling me like, hey, you've come so far. Like, I remember when you showed up and you, you barely knew anything the first day. And this is, we've been together for years. So, and he's like, yeah, like if you look over there and he, he pointed, you know, in one direction, he's like, look over there and remember way over there, that's when you didn't know anything. And he's like, and now you're right here and look how far you've come. And if Q was just pointing toward nothing and then, you know, so I had like this kind of, you know, probably beam in my face and a little bit of confidence and that, you know, that old basketball feeling where I'm like, okay, you know, this is, I'm I'm winning in some way. And, and, um, and then he pointed uh, in the other direction and he's like, and now look how far you have to go. <laughs> and he's like, you know, you don't know nothing. This is a funny phrase that I've heard many times an uh, elder. Hubert has never been rough with me in that way, but some of my elders have said, like, uh, this is the way they say it, too. And it will give you a feeling of it, of what I feel when I hear it. But they'll say, you don't know nothing. <laughs> and they're and the way that they say that, you feel it. You feel the <laughs> emptiness of what you do not know right. in your body and in your mind. Um, but, but yeah, so Mojave for me, it, it, it has a place. And it's, it's a place of love. It's a place of pain. Um, it's a place of extreme desire and weight. Um, it's, a, it's a place of energy, I think, for me the language that feels almost like pure energy is the Mojave language because it hasn't been, I mean, it's definitely been filtered through, you know, through colonialism, through this country, this, uh, you know, and not just here. I mean, there are indigenous languages all over, like Africa is full of indigenous languages, you know, Russia, all of these places. So it's been filtered in those ways, but it hasn't been filtered with some of the greed and some of the performance and some of the um, some of the the selfishness i think that other languages have english in particular and so it exists in a different way like when we speak when we speak about nouns there are also things we can do when we speak about a place we're speaking about what has happened there and so everything is so physical that it's just a reminder that I'm a body connected to this body that is language, which has come up from this land, which is a body. And so it's difficult to bring it on the page. When I do bring it on the page, it's, it's because it's the only thing, you know, it's because it, there is no English to carry it. And in the second book in post-colonial love poem, uh, the, the first water is the body is the place where i feel like i've given my readers one of the most powerful words i know in hamakav in hahaviel you know in 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 just saying in like to to i feel like i've given my readers a gift in that which is to hear and not me i don't even mean me because in some ways there's a speaker in the book but to hear someone say this is who i am and it's not about i as an ego or i as a flesh body but it's i as a being Um, and i feel it every time i say it you know every time i read it and so um and then the other piece where i i said maybe something that that other mojaves might think uh to not say but i said I said my name in Mojave, mm. which I don't often say to people in person, but the, and that was in the poem Snake Light, where I come out and say what my name is and, and I say what it means, and that name is from my, my great-grandmother. Mm. And so, you know, and, and I, I don't feel any kind of betrayal there, but what I feel is that I'm slowly learning how – I'm slowly learning um, not how to make Mojave exist in English, but to let to, to give Mojave a place within this other language that it can't be touched.
0: Yeah. No, it makes me think a little bit of a conversation I, I had with the poet Mary Kim Arnold, and we were talking about a quote by your fellow um, National Book Award finalist, Don Mee che where she was talking about how Korean and English are not, Transnationally equal, if oh yeah, that's such an amazing book. <laughs> um, I have
1: Tommy's book here. And, yeah, uh, I I spent so much time in it.
0: Yes, and um, you know, with South Korea being a neo colony of the U.S. for seventy years, it's impossible for the two languages or the two sides of the hyphen of uh, uh, of a hybrid identity to be relating to each other in equal ways. And it sort of feels like. The ritual that you do before each reading is reminding us of that. That um, even you start with Mojave, you then go to Spanish, then you go to English, but the subsequent talk is going to just be in English, and that is not by accident. That's a product of power and, and erasure, and sort of reminds us again of 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 the way these languages are in relationship to each other. And I was I, before we um, before we hear some poems, I, I just wanted to stay on this notion, one one more beat around love in relationship to empathy. And it's something that you said that I remember you saying a long time ago, but I was unable to find it, so I don't know if my memory is totally off. So I might be saying this incorrectly. But I wondered if... um it made me think of how, like, translation... Em- empathy is usually put forth as an inherent good, that the ability to know and to understand the other is is something to strive for. But another way to look at empathy, which feels related to your model of translation, is that unlike sympathy, empathy is presumptuous, that, that it presumes that we could know the other. And in this talk that you gave, at least in my memory of this talk you gave, you were talking about empathy as a hunting technique uh, from Scandinavia, a, as a way to intuit and know the moves of your prey so in a sense a way a, a technique of a predator and and i don't know if that's if i'm getting that right but i'm it does it provoke any recollection on your yeah, part
1: can you, can you kind of go back through that last part again as like we're like uh where we kind of move into like thinking about the idea of the predator
0: yeah so um so if we think of the the in the general culture, translating something or having empathy for something are considered good, and they're both sort of predicated on this idea of coming to know something as being both possible and a good in its own right. And I was thinking about your notion of translation and and also potentially of love, allowing for this space of not knowing and maybe even the sens- sensuality uh, of love and desire coming from that space, not being bridged. Um, And then this talk that you gave up where you were, you were skeptical of empathy, of the notion of, of knowing someone else's different experience. And I believe you were talking about it originating as a way to hunt, to, to imagine yourself into the, thought processes of a pre- of prey so that you could anticipate them and catch them. I don't know if that's true. I mean, is that true?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know the prey part, but I, I mean, I, I definitely feel that way about translation and some of this goes back to knowledge. Like there's a knowledge that's just for me and not for you. There's a knowledge that's just for my partner and I, and not for others. There's a knowledge that is just for Mojaves and not for others. And and you have those knowledges also. But there's a language that that is that is maybe pre-verbal, or maybe um, incapable of of being verbal. And and to me, that that's the most important thing, right? We we have been taught that we can make meaning or make sense of everything. Like how many times we've said it here, like, does that make sense? Do I make sense? And like, I, I talk with my students about this. I'm like, I don't know if it makes sense. It doesn't have to, but if this is where you're at trying to make sense, or uh, trying to again, like trying to make sense, if this is where you're at trying to figure out the question, trying to understand what is, you know, outside the question, adjacent to the question, then that's all that matters. Right. And that some of that, you know, it's really tough with my students to let them know that like the poem is just the the smallest part of, of what you're wondering Mm. of what that experience is. And I don't, I don't believe in empathy. And some people really bucket that idea. Like they are, they get frustrated with it and which I also think is interesting, but that's sideways from here. I don't, I don't believe I should ever deny, not, I don't even have the power to deny, but I don't feel the need to um, have an argument about a word someone needs for themselves or a concept someone needs in order for them to feel their being who they need to be or how they need to be. I guess the question I have, and this, this does relate to love, um, th- the question I have is, where is the action? Like, I feel like I have a body. And when I say a body, I mean a flesh body that has a power that I don't even understand to act, to interact. And some of that I think was intentionally meant for the, for the earth, for what made me. And then everything else is is naturally in relationship to other beings and other life whether it's my river or the plant or my lover or for me like a place I think a lot about is for the stranger you know what does that mean for the stranger um, to treat the stranger as as a beloved and sometimes we pretend that English is the action that language is the action I believe language is physical I believe language is beyond us, but the thing I'm most interested in is, is what is the human action, and and why that's important is because I think human is a very problematic word. Um, you know, from Sylvia Winter to you know one of my best friends, Roger Reeves, is constantly pressing on this idea of like, what do we mean by human? Like, who can even be human, and who would want to be a human? Mm. You know, um, and so I think a lot about about that relationship, you know, and and what does it mean? Like, so I don't believe empathy is possible. And yet the fact that it's not possible is to me the most possible, Mm -hmm. you know, the most possible scenario is like, I have no idea what it feels like to be someone else. You might have lost your mother and I might've lost my mother, but I have no idea what you feel like. I know what I feel like and that might inspire me to have certain ways of caring or even avoiding but it's not the same feeling and it doesn't need to be right like for me the fact that i can be next to someone and not need to pretend i can be in their shoes like that's what life is that that to me is the ecstatic and and i mean and I've written a little bit about this and, you know, we had talks about this, but if, if there really was such a thing as empathy, we couldn't fucking stand it Yeah. because what is happening right now in the world, like, I mean, and, and I don't, I mean, we keep saying like kids in cages, but that it's worse than that. Like the ways that we are, are holding people in detention, you know, men and women and children, the ways that we're pushing them, um, We're pushing them through one of the worst corridors in the desert. And right now in the desert, the heat, the the temperature is shifting. So you might think it's a relief for them um, to, uh, and I'm talking about people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border who are not all Mexicans, uh, who are not all Central and South Americans, many of whom whom are East Asian, an amazing portion that most people don't know, or a a large percentage that most people don't know about are coming from Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, my partner uh, does work with No More Deaths and also visits some of the detention centers. And because my partner is black and there are very few black people who do this, she's always set up with the, the black women and, you know, people from uh, Haiti, people from Cameroon and, and some of the, the things that they've been through. Um, but the fact that, that we do that, that's happening right now. And even though, you know, it's not the heat that, that will kill them right now, it will be hypothermia, you know, or it will be some, some unimaginable violence that happens to them. That's happening right now as I'm sitting here having a conversation with you. And yet I made a good coffee. I'm drinking clean water. You know, if there really was empathy, I would not, I wouldn't be able to take it. My mind would buckle beneath the things I, I quote, know, but can't can't embody in a, in that knowing. And, and I also feel like I don't know where empathy ends or begins. It it, I have the same problem with the, the, the idea of witness, you know, it's to say that I have empathy. It's like, Oh, I mean, for me, when I, when I think about what is empathy, this is one lens of the way I think about it. It is me, seeing or hearing about something that's happened to someone and being able to imagine how I would feel if it happened to me, it has nothing to do with them. People are getting bombs dropped on them right now. Um, we're sending, I mean, who knows how many American drones right now are, um, you know, moving toward autonomous death or, you know, uh, bringing uh, entire family homes to rubble in in the tribal areas outside Pakistan and 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 in, you know what's happening in Gaza right now and because I can't imagine it happening to me, here we are right and and so it, I guess that's the thing is the only thing that feels at stake in empathy is that it not happened to me yeah. And, and so I just I, I struggle with that a little bit. And, you know, I think about um, I've been doing some work around this and I have a friend who's doing work about around this in a, a different area. And a while back, I wrote uh, I did some work at Verilis Center on freedom of speech, the idea of freedom of speech. And I don't feel like it's something I don't think it's a valiant thing. I don't think it's a right. I, I actually think it's more harmful than good, the ways we've set up freedom of speech. I say that also understanding that I can speak and not be persecuted for it in ways that other people are, you know, poets. and, um, But uh, we were talking about the book Beloved, and we were talking about the character uh, Sixo. And when they first introduce Sixo into the story, um, or when he first appears, they're talking about him being gentle. And, and they say, but that's when he was speaking, he was still speaking English then, but he stopped speaking English because there was no future in it. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and I don't take that in a very literal way, but, but to me, I'm really thinking about that because all of our buzzwords, you know, I don't know what a liberal is. I don't know what empathy is. You know, all of these allyship. And it doesn't mean that they aren't useful for people. It just means that for me, I can't find the action in them. And I'm in a space where I am trying to figure out what I can do with a life. And it doesn't, I'm not saying that I, I want to save the world, I'm, but, but sometimes the smallest gesture you know, um, and I don't know what they are sometimes, but I'm searching for them. And poetry is one of those, I think of them as touch. It's one way I touch my life. Um, and it's lucky that there's evidence or there's reply back that it, that the things I do touch other people's lives, but, but that to me feels like the lucky part, um, yeah, so I I spin around in in some of those things, and again, it's not that I, it's not that I feel like I know something about them. It's it's quite the opposite. It feels like, a, yeah, it feels like I want a different knowing than the one that's in my head that says, "Oh yeah, I know how you feel." Yeah. Because I don't. I I don't know that I ever will.
0: Well, if you're willing, I'd love to hear, the opening poem, post-colonial love poem the poem that's set apart from the others between the epigraphs by Joy Harjo and Mahmoud Darwish. And, and then after that, if you uh, are amenable, the um, American, American arithmetic.
1: Both of those quotes that um, both of of the epigraphs are quotes on either side of the poem are two writers who've been extremely important to me. And, and, and also uh, just language that when I came across it, I knew, I knew at once how language also fails, but then I also knew our desire, the language is one of our desires to to live. I'm just going to read those quotes, and then I'll read the poem. So the, the epigraph that opens the book is from uh, Joy Harjo's Conflict, Re- Re- Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings, which is Um, Just a book that I come back to again and again. I am singing a song that can only be born after losing a country. Joy Harjo. And Mahmoud Darwish, uh, I mean, thinking about indigeneity and uh, Palestine and Gaza and uh, just some of the work. Uh, Darwish has done uh, Journal of Ordinary Grief in the Presence of Absence, Uh, Fadi Judah translated um, Butterfly's Burden, Uh, just uh, yeah it's language beyond language. We admitted that we were human beings and melted for love in this desert. Mahmoud Darwish. Post-colonial love poem. I've been taught bloodstones can cure a snake bite, can stop the bleeding. Most people forgot this when the war ended. The war ended depending on which war you mean, those we started before those millennia ago and onward, those which started me, which I lost and won, these ever blooming wounds. I was built by wage. So I wage love and worse, always another campaign to march across a desert night for the cannon flash of your pale skin, settling in a silver lagoon of smoke at your breast. I dismount my dark horse, bend to you there, deliver you the hard pool of all my thirst. I learned drink in a country of drought we pleasure to hurt leave marks the size of stones each a cabochon polished by our mouths i your lapidary your lapidary wheel turning green mottled red the jaspers of our desires there are wild flowers in my desert which take up to 20 years to bloom the seeds sleep like geodes beneath hot feldspar sand, until a flash flood bolts the arroyo, lifting them in its copper current, opens them with memory. They remember what their god whispered into their ribs, wake up and ache for your life. Where your hands have been are diamonds on my shoulders, down my back, thighs. I am your culebra, I am in the dirt for you. Your hips are quartz light and dangerous, two rose-horned rams ascending a soft desert wash. Before the November sky untethers a hundred-year flood, the desert returns suddenly to its ancient sea. Arise the wild heliotrope, Scorpion weed, blue phacelia, which hold purple the way a throat can hold the shape of any great hand. Great hands is what she called mine. The rain will eventually come or not. Until then, we touch our bodies like wounds. The war never ended and somehow begins again. And that of course was where post-colonial love poem came from, realizing that I could probably never write a poem that wasn't that was post-colonial. <laughs> You might hear some like buzzing going by. I live in the desert, so all of these people have like they mostly drive doom buggies versus vehicles. <laughs> so um <laughs> I don't hear it too Their bad. trucks are like gigantic. We call them yeah. like God, Jeepers Creepers with like from that <laughs> scary movie. <Yeah. clears throat> so I'll read American Arithmetic and I don't know if we'll talk about this, but I was just struck by like statistics, right? Like that that the the fact that natives exist largely as statistics. And what I mean by that is we're, we're barely considered, you know, how many times have we seen in the New York Times or large media? Um, I think, I think people had to fight for us to be represented in COVID, even though we have, you know, it struck us so bad. And there were a lot of journalists who were fighting for that. Um, And so with this poem, I wanted, you know, it was just part of that, Part of me demanding something beyond a statistic or, you know, trying to uh, to think, uh, you know, I guess trying to, to recognize the, the story of the statistic or that the statistic is not us. The statistic is what America has put on us as a kind of stamp in some ways. And then there was also this... Uh, this, I was in a conversation where someone was talking about, you know, that statistics could never be emotional. American arithmetic. Native Americans make up less than 1% of the population in America. 0.8% of 100%. Oh, mine efficient country. I do not remember the days before America. I do not remember the days when we were all here. Police kill Native Americans more than any other race. Race is a funny word. Race implies someone will win, implies I have as good a chance of winning as who wins the race that isn't a race. Native Americans make up 1.9% of all police killings, higher per capita than any race. Sometimes race means run. I'm not good at math. Can you blame me? I've had an American education. We are Americans and we are less than 1% of Americans. We do a better job of dying by police than we do existing. When we are dying, who should we call? the police, or our senator. Please, someone, call my mother. At the National Museum of the American Indian, 68% of the collection is from the United States. I am doing my best to not become a museum of myself. I am doing my best to breathe in and out. I am begging. Let me be lonely, but not invisible. But in an American room of 100 people, I am Native American, less than one, less than whole. I am less than myself, only a fraction of a body. Let's say I am only a hand. And when I slip it beneath the shirt of my lover, I disappear completely.
0: We're talking today to the poet Natalie Diaz about our latest collection of poetry from Gray Wolf, post-colonial love poem. I did want to talk about the statistics in American arithmetic, the notion that this is probably news to most people, that there's no other group that is killed more frequently than Native Americans by police. And I've been thinking about that, that if we look at black pain and injustice, it is made very visible as spectacle and how, um, you know, how white mass murderers are arrested without being harmed, the media censoring the corpses of white bodies and of bodies coming home from our wars of any color. And But at any time, I can watch videos of any number of unarmed black men and women killed by the police. And even if I haven't wanted to see those videos or photos, I've likely had them put in front of me, a knee on a neck, a grieving mother, undone and in distress. And in a recent conversation with Imani Perry and Kiesi Lehman, KC Lehman called it the titillation that people get from the spectacle of Black pain. And Cydia Hartman describes the consumption not just of Black pain, but of Black social life as something vampiric. But the positioning of Native Americans in the American discourse seems to be one of having no position. And I'm thinking, for instance, say Multnomah County, where Portland is, is the ninth largest urban Native American population in the United States. And there are 28 Native organizations in the Portland area. And yet I suspect most Portland most Portlanders wouldn't think of or know of a Native presence in the city whatsoever. And more to the point of your poem, crimes against Natives don't even make the news. They're non-events. The epidemic of disappeared and murdered Native women that... In 1980, 9% of female homicide victims were Indigenous, which is already wildly disproportionately high. But that increased to 24% by 2015. Or that in Canada, the homicide rate of Indigenous women is six times higher than the national average. But the epidemic is largely unknown that most people probably can't name a single person by name a single murdered indigenous woman by name like they can, Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or bena Taylor, and i I just I guess given how much I wonder, given how much we've talked about the ways others can't be known or understood when it comes to translation or love, if you could speak to this other phenomenon, the American arithmetic of this poem, which doesn't seem to put the indigenous experience in the equation to begin with.
1: This is exactly the way America wanted it, right? It was erasure in order to take the land. So in some ways it, it makes perfect mathematical sense of how America became itself. The same kind of terrible mathematics that, um, that created and maintained chattel slavery for so long. Um, And like, to me, one of the, one of the true losses is the separation of the oft separation of what this empire has done to anyone outside, anyone outside the, the recognizable and familiar familiarity with with a flesh body of power. You know, like our reservations, for example, were also the sites of Japanese American incarceration. Horrendous conditions and ways that they were treated. Um, Thinking about the uh, state of of Chinese migrants or uh, Chinese Americans and what they were put through. Um, I mean, imprisonment, you know, thinking about the beginning when the missions came and what happened to men and women and children of sexual abuse and even a kind of, of forced labor or enslavement that, that didn't last because we also didn't last. Um, and, and, I mean, to me, this is exactly what what is what America wants. They want us to keep reestablishing what is the beginning. And. And, and this goes back to when I was talking about you know, footnotes, um, the statistics of, like when we're thinking about, uh, like let's just think about land because that's how most people think of natives. So we'll just join them right now with that lens. Na- there's about 370 million indigenous peoples uh, around the world. And we are responsible for our whole tenure over lands that, can, that are 85% of the world's biodiversity. Like people do not realize because they don't have to because they are engaged as well in what is occupation and what is displacement and what is um, like straightforwardly land theft. And it's not enough to say I'm on occupied territory, or you know, it's because that's not what land is about. It's about relationship, and it's it's not simply about whether we were brought here because we wanted to be, or whether we arrived here because you know because of something as horrendous and and inexplicable. There's no there's no word I can put on on uh, the system of enslavement in America and and how that has not stopped has just reorganized itself throughout time or what's happening right now with what we call refugee or or migration you know migrations have always happened for terrible reasons for natural reasons and what we reduce indigeneity to is land it's okay pipelines and You know, they polluted their water. Well, what's happening to natives with water we're seeing happen in Flint, Michigan. That's connected. And until we make that connection, you know, nothing will change until we connect what's happening to natives. uh, Natives meaning indigenous peoples in the Americas, to what's happening in Palestine or Gaza, to what's happening to uh, black men and women in the United States. Um, in the Americas, again, in general, until we connect what is indigenous uh, in terms of land to what is indigenous in terms of uh, diasporic or dispersed people, you know, who are also Black. In America, we have this tendency that uh, Black only means one thing. We do the same thing with natives. Native only means one thing. We're all from different lands and languages. And, And to me, that invisibility is to our own detriment. It's a poison, right? And it began, America came in, and I mean, literally sometimes poisoned, destroying crops, destroying seed banks. We were out in our desert from our one of our sister reservations, and um, we were out looking at uh, some of the seeds in the desert that people might not notice were there, but that we once subsisted off of. But knowing just that, that uh, troops came through and burned those seed caches, and then they grazed it so that they were gone. You know, these are small things that are actually the large things. Um, you know, and I, I'm thinking again, you know, I think that is such a striking point you've made about not knowing the names of people. The fact that there is no count for, uh, for murdered missing black women in the United States. There is no count for murdered missing indigenous women in the United States. That is connected. What's happening to women in Ciudad Juarez? That is connected, and it's unbelievable to me that that uh, I mean. And for me, some of why that's disconnected is because I think American scholarship has to do more. Uh, it's not enough to study it and to speak amongst one another about these things uh, without considering what that information is and that that information actually exists in communities already. Um, and what does it mean to, it is a type of extraction. I think a lot of times when we take this and like we write papers and things about it. Um, you know, I, I am struck always by Cydia's work and uh, Kulisa's work uh, among other people. And I'm thinking, you know, that thinking about like uh, black death is a kind of, uh, like titillation. Um, and, and I think, I think titillation is a good word because I think I would push it to, to ecstatic. I think there's an ecstatic, there's the white ecstatic. And we once pretended to tie that to Christianity. I'm thinking of like St. Therese and all of these things, but, but the white ecstatic is very much tied to, um, the lives and deaths and, uh, diminishments of who is outside that structure, whether it is, um, you know, those trying to cross the border and, or whether it is indigenous peoples on their lands right now. You know, um, there's a, uh, my friend Nick Gallanin. he's a visual artist, and he recently did a piece on John T. Williams, who was a, a carver, um, and uh, from like the Nuchano Nation, and he was gunned down by a policeman in Seattle um, because, uh, well, we, we know like the stories of because and the because, but he had, he's a carver. And so he had a carving knife in his hand, you know, coming from doing what he does. Um, and, and I mean, you know, the list of names goes on, but the fact that that never makes the news you know, um, the things that happen on my reservation, people w- would never hear it, you know? And so, and that's what I mean by the, by the statistic, it's such a, you know, in some ways it's stark, like, you know, they say we're like 0. 0.8 to 1.8% of the population. It shifts depending on, you know, which I was looking at, like, I pulled those numbers from DOJ reports, but, um, I guess just realizing all of the ways that we are disconnected and dislocated from those connections, which is why I think indigeneity is a key to uh, to what I call constellating all of us. Mm. You know, a constellation is not it's not saying we're all the same, but what it is is it's uh, it's it's noticing, it's being attentive to the space between those things. And, you know, it's also being willing to imagine the different ways those things uh, exist in relationship, you know, and so I guess something I, I think about, and this isn't, now I think I'm starting to go into some of my own theories of existence, but, you know, we talk a lot about intersectionality, which I think, you know, we all can agree that's a very important concept. And we've also watched how a lot of white feminists have destroyed or morphed or tried to destroy because it still exists as what it is for people and in in an indigenous way of thinking we would go beyond intersectionality right like I think of intersectionality sometimes the way white people have expressed it or talked about it to me is like they literally think we all rolled up to an intersection and we're we're like no you go first
0: no you go first (laughs) right
1: and so thinking about uh, thinking, I guess, about the ways we don't, we aren't willing sometimes to, to state how complicit we are in that power structure, and so I think sometimes of intersectionality as being like a, a negotiation of that power, right? Like mm-hmm. who should give it up, who should cede it, who should uh, uh, step into the center of it, whereas. Some of the ways we think, and I'm not speaking for all indigenous peoples, but thinking about relationality is it's understanding that your autonomy means nothing and actually can't exist if it's not in relation to who is around you. You know, and a lot of that is just being on the res. Like I grew up and my next door neighbor was my uncle and the person across the cul-de-sac from me was my auntie and that your neighbors are your family and your community is your family. And yes, some of us were cousins or, or you know, aunties or, or grandmothers, but, but that's not the relationality we mean. We mean that my actions are in some ways a part of my community's actions. And it doesn't mean that's always in unity, you know, or in, in some sort of harmony, but that my actions also affect them And I feel like in some ways that's what's missing about what is uh, the indigenous experience. And it's, we're starting to see it, I think more present. I think standing rock was a a big part of that. I think the, what peoples are starting to realize with the pipelines uh, is a, is a large part of that. But, but yeah, I mean, and I don't even mean this necessarily as a complaint, but I, I just mean like the, the relationships I have right now, in conversation, and in imagination, are very much collective imaginations. Um, I talk about them and I try to build them as what I call imaginative trusts. And it's bringing in what is Indigenous, what is Indigenous diasporic, what is, you know, and and trying to create these spaces or conversations where I can exist as a Native and be recognized as a Native. Someone else can exist in in all of the, the ways that their relationships, they are, and I don't just mean identity, but I mean like genealogies, like where have you come from?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How did you arrive here? And not, it's not even necessarily about the how you arrived here, but now that you're here, how do we arrive to place? And then, now that you're here, how do I receive, and how do we receive one another in this place? I think it truly is a practice that I'm still learning.
0: Could we hear Manhattan is a Lenape word?
1: Yeah. Manhattan is a Lenape word. It is December, and we must be brave. The ambulance's rows of light blooming against the window. Its single siren cry, help me. A silk red shadow unbolting like water through the orchard of her thigh. Her come in the green night, a lion. I sleep her bees with my mouth of smoke, dip honey with my hand stung sweet, on the darksome hive. Out of the eater, I eat, meaning she is mine, colony. The things I know aren't easy. I'm the only Native American on the eighth floor of this hotel, or any, looking out any window of a turn of the century building in Manhattan. Manhattan is a Lenape word. Even a watch must be wound. How can a century or a heart turn if nobody asks? Where have all the natives gone? If you are where you are, then where are those who are not here? Not here. Which is why in this city I have many lovers. All my loves are reparations, loves. What is loneliness if not unimaginable light and measured in lumens? An electric bill which must be paid. A taxi cab floating across three lanes with its lamplit gold in wanting. At 2 a.m., everyone in New York City is empty and asking for someone. Again, the siren, same wide note, help me, meaning I have a gift and it is my body made two-handed of gods and bronze. She says, you make me feel like lightning. I say I don't ever want to make you feel that white. It's too late. I can't stop seeing her bones. I'm counting the carpals, metacarpals of her hand inside me. One bone, the lunate bone, is named for its crescent outline. Lunatus, Luna. Some nights she rises like that in me, like trouble, a slow, luminous flux. The street lamp beckons the lonely coyote wandering West 29th Street by offering its long wrist of light. The coyote answers by lifting its head and crying stars. Somewhere far from New York City, an American drone finds and loves a body. The radiant nectar it seeks through great darkness makes a candle hour of it and burns gently along it like American touch, an unbearable heat. The siren song returns in me. I sing it across her throat. Am I what I love? Is this the glittering world I've been begging for?
0: We're talking today to the poet Natalie Diaz about her latest collection of poetry from *Gray Wolf: Post-Colonial Love Poem*.
1: Something I just wanted to add when I, because I, I said the white, I was talking about the white ecstatic, and and that's something I th- I think about, like especially in relationship to what what the quotes that you narrated of in and Chies- is in that and what I mean by the white ecstatic is it it gives them a space to step it, I think it does two things it's twofold like in one respect it's nostalgic so that they can look back and recognize the power they have in that and I think in another way it allows them to escape having any complicity in it you know and so it's the same way that you know uh, of thinking about uh, all of the different, ways of Black Death that they've invented and imagined. Um, and then even the ways they think about indigeneity and like the idea of the Wild West, you know, it's like, how can they step into our bodies, you know, through music or through dance? Um, you know, how can they step into that body? And, and one of the ways that they believe they can, and, and I think that's behind it is, is that they believe they have conquered They don't want to step into the bodies they have not conquered, and so for them, I think there's this—it's this crazy psyche, which is at once nostalgia for that and a return to their power in that relationship, Mm. and then I also think it's this kind of sick way, of of stepping outside their quote guilt or complicity or that they still have stakes in that power, and I think for me that's what I mean by by that idea of the white ecstatic and how it relates to each one of us, whether, whether it's having been descendants of, of, um, you know, a slavery or, or peoples of, uh, you know, of enslavement, or, um, you know, Chinese Americans or uh, Vietnam, for example. Um, and so there's something about that I, I, I knew I wasn't clear before, but that's one of the ways I, I guess I think about relating to some of of what they've said.
0: It somehow feels connected maybe to the, that predatory notion of empathy also. Um,
1: Yeah. And witness, right? Like, and I think this is now like, I I can connect to that idea of, of the predatory in relationship to, to empathy and witness, because it's, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like going into a department store or wherever people shop and, and you can pick, you can pick out an outfit, that is a projection of how you want to be seen, you know? And so thinking like that's what empathy is in a lot of ways. That's one way of, of looking at it. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think there's something about that in that. How do I, uh, how do I construct the different ways that I would like to be seen? And it's the same extractive nature, it's the same extraction that's happened across time, you know, to come in and, and extract the land and then to continue. And, it, and it's never, it's a never ending extraction, right? Like, I feel like once you become that, that predator, once you engage in that hunt, um, you know, for prey, it, it doesn't end. It doesn't end unless you're willing to stop and look at everything that you have done. And, and take an account of what that means for what you might do next. Mm. You know, it's like, yes, they took the land. Well, they took the land. Well, that wasn't enough. They take the water, you know, and they, they take the water. That's not enough. And so they have to take uranium. They have to take coal. It, it, it just doesn't end, you know, and it's the same way thinking about the labors that they tried to take from, um, from Africans and you know Black Americans today are still being extracted from in that way, just with with a different method.
0: Yeah, well, it made me it makes me think a little bit of my conversation with Joe Sacco, whose whose latest book, "Paying the Land," is uh, about the Dene people of the Northwest Territories of Canada. It seems like it goes the extraction goes farther. Like, not only is this cutting off through Christianity and residential schools of knowledge of, of living on the land of, of transmission of knowledge across generations of language um, being passed down through generations uh, and then the extraction of resources. Um, but
1: if I can say something, I think Osako's book is extractive. You do. I do. I think that that dip in and like, To me, that's an example of, of empathy, but, but being dressed in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean that only natives can tell those stories. And I think the importance is for many people to know about one another's histories and stories, but there was just something about that book that, that to me felt kind of like that extraction. And, and, and one of the ways I'll say that is because relationality is all the difference. Some of that information in there, I do think, is important and needs to be out. But that kind of quick drive—it felt like drive-by, drive-through writing—and um, then it's also been hailed as like through the lens of empathy. And yeah, that's that's a book I I wrestled with quite a bit.
0: Well, let me ask. Uh, let me ask the the part. The reason I brought it up was more from the perspective of when we're talking about extraction. The The interesting part about it, which also came up in my conversation with Jake Skeets, is about how the destruction of a culture and the transmission of knowledge and then the only opportunities available within sort of a corporate capitalist extractive system become resource extractive jobs so that we find n- Native peoples um prominent in coal or in t- or here in the Northwest in timber or in the Northwest territories in fracking and, and oil. Um, it feels like it goes. So d- that extractive or, or we would call it predatory uh, relationship goes all the way into the interior of like, how can, what are the options for someone to make a, a livelihood? I, I don't know if there's a, a white ecstatic in seeing a native population being tethered to a resource extractive, uh, occupation. Um, but I didn't know if you had any thoughts about, about that.
1: Definitely. Like I teach in the Academy. Like, I think that's one of the most extractive, one of the most extractive structures of knowledge. Um, I'm, I struggle with it a lot. You know, what does it mean to be a part of the Academy, which which recognizes itself as a center of knowledge and which decides which knowledges are valued, uh, who who receives them, um, and then especially, you know, like I mean, from the beginning, it's it's like from the beginning of quote history, there have been uh, stories of which of our indigenous leaders, and I'm saying our very broadly, um, capitulated or. It's probably not the right word, right? Because I think, I think I want to be careful of, of recognizing uh, what choice means in America and what, what goodness becomes. Uh, So, for example, here at Fort Mojave, we. um, Let that thing pass. Um, But here at Fort Mojave, we still have our, a lot of our land. Like, I can look at my creation mountain. It no longer be- belongs to us, right? They want to turn it into a park or something, which is, you know, the park services is a- another racket. But I look there. Um, I see where the fort was, which we no longer, of course, own, well, where the fort the fort was, which became the boarding school. Um, however, we had a sub chief who decided to take the government's offer, which split our tribe. And so they moved downriver to what is now Parker, Arizona, or we call it, it's called the crit because it's the Colorado river Indian tribes, because they thought they were going, uh, th- by themselves to become another space for Mojaves, but they also moved in, uh, Chimawabes, uh, Dene or people from Navajo nation, um, Hopi. And then of course it's also the site of the Poston, um, concentration camp, or, you know, one of the the Japanese American carceral sites. And so that's another, I mean, that's maybe an early example of when someone made a decision that they thought would be better in some way, maybe for them, maybe for their entire community. Um, I, I, I think also in terms of this, I think, I think, again, about what we've learned of what is goodness or what is success and how those are just traps. They're traps. We'll, we will never, I don't think I will ever be successful in America because, um, there's someone else's measures of success and I will always be other and outside of that. You know, um, I think of like my brother, for example, my, my, the brother I write about who becomes the brother, you know, my, my real life brother becomes the brother in some of my work is that, he didn't have that system of success the choices he was given he made and and i can look at them from the outside and say that was the wrong choice but it's not the wrong choice because it was never mine to make and i think a lot about what it means that i am me and he's him like and it wasn't simply because i took a, a separate like suddenly i had a I came to a crossroads and was like, Natalie, you can do this or you can do this. It wasn't like that. And in some ways, the mistakes my brother made or what we call mistakes or the choices he made ahead of me in some ways were very protective of me because I had a different path because of those choices. It's not the same analogy, but I really want to complicate that analogy because, you know, uh, I think a lot of this we can equate it now to greed and money, but I think this began with these ideas of goodness. How could you be a good Indian while you were being occupied by a government? Well, you you got in line, you walked the line, and if you weren't, you were punished. You were punished with starvation, you know. Like, and so that is also very much ingrained in us, you know. And so if you wanted to eat. You did what they asked if you didn't want to eat you suffered and starved and and for me that's that's still happening today and and you know there's there's sovereignty is such a problematic word in in indian country or an indigenous country it's a word that a lot of our young people are struggling with and, and pushing back against and yet sovereignty for our older generations is what keeps us visible in u.s law you know but but We really do have to question what is sovereignty, right? And we're seeing it now more publicly. It's always been happening privately on reservations, but if the government wants to, they do it. You know, we saw this like very, very much in the public eye at Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. And immediately after some of those pipelines went in, they, they had environmental disasters right behind it. And so... You know, there were many people in the Navajo Nation who did not want those large mining companies and mines to come in from uranium to, to coal, Um, and yet they did. And then you survive. Right. And you know, it's it's a really complicated uh, process. So, like a process, it's a complicated process of living under occupation.
0: I want to take what you're saying now and connect it to something I recently listened to. I I attended a virtual event for Seattle Arts and Lectures between Douglas Kearney and Claudia Rankin, and they got on the topic of Afro-pessimism, and Claudia Rankin, while she agreed that today Black Americans are still not viewed as fully human, she believed also, contrary to Afro-pessimism, that we couldn't Step outside the system that we that black people had to sort of pretend otherwise about the black situation, still vote, still elect black congressmen, still step into roles like poet laureate of the United States, um, still participate within the system while acknowledging that the system doesn't want their participation. Um, And I feel like often when I've seen you talk, you often tell stories that evoke these conundrums, uh, these sort of circular puzzles or traps of of living under occupation, as you say. Like for instance, in your talk with Nikki Finney, you mentioned the experience of visiting your sister in prison, how the bathroom in the waiting room was a complete disaster with tissue and paper towels and everything all over the floor. And that after you went in and cleaned it up to give the place a little island of dignity, the guards would just go back in and turn it all upside down again, that the bathroom being that way was by design. And in a similar vein, you've talked about how the money you've received from the Ford Foundation as a poet is money that's from the prison and carceral system. But the the anecdote I, was, I, I wanted to maybe focus on in this relationship was one of your talks at the Tin House Writers Workshop that you were talking about the sense of the inescapable around the Colorado River and how the system of water rights is is asserted through how much water you consume or in another way to look at how much water you waste. You can't demonstrate your water rights through the conservation or preservation of the water. So tribal nations along the Colorado River, if they wanted to keep their rights, would flood golf courses with water to keep the water access. Um, And the Colorado River runs through many of the poems in post-colonial love poem. So I was hoping we could take this notion of living under occupation and talk about land and water and relationship to body and being because you very explicitly say that when you say, I carry a river or the first water is the body, that you aren't being metaphorical or conveying a mythos but instead asserting an equivalency and i think that's a an important aspect of this collection that i would i would love for us to not skip over
1: i think perhaps the one of the, the terms that we should open this with is the idea of the human um, to not be fully human and you know i i talk about that many of us talk about that but that is the problem is what is the human And in some ways, like America can have their fucking idea of the human. I will never, I will, I will never succeed to it. It's, it's built into the language for me not to succeed in it. And so in some ways, like it's important for me to recognize that and, and then also understand that there is then the space outside of the human that I occupy and So like when you were saying, like, referring back to that line about, you know, this is not metaphor. um, That's something I know and believe. It's also very difficult to practice that in America. And so when I'm thinking again about kind of critiquing that, critiquing, like, what is participation? And the question, is participation, is there a difference between participation and complicity? Mm -hmm. Can you participate and not be a part of it? Can you participate and not be complicit in it? And the question that's most important for me is the one I have to ask myself within that, which is what, what am I comfortable enough to, what am I comfortable enough to reject of humanity? Because that's it's going to be very uncomfortable. We're kind of we're in this pandemic situation right now where we're starting to maybe not ask those questions, but move toward them or like you know to imagine what what some of that language is. Because I have I do think a lot about the census. I think a lot about voting, and I think. I think those deserve, those deserve more critique and there has to be more nuanced ways of discussing those things because what we've done is said, it's this or it's that. And that's exactly what the American blueprint has banked on us doing. We are citizen or not. So in order to be citizen, I have to participate in these things. I don't know that we do. You know, I don't know You know, that small move of walking into a a bathroom at the prison and seeing them throw, like, walking into that bathroom in the prison and seeing what a disaster it was. Like, that was, that bathroom was in that state because those people at the prison have a definition of what is human. And they wanted me to know, they wanted every other person visiting to know we did not uh we were not succeeding as that human when i picked that up and wiped the counters and the mirror it wasn't because i wanted them to know i was human it was because i wanted me in that moment to be able to enter into a space with my sister and have not just dignity but care for myself i deserved more in that small space of a, of a bathroom, right? Maybe the, the smallest spaces of our lives, like a bathroom. It's a thing we do, a very utilitarian flesh body thing. We go to the bathroom, we wash our hands. But it was important for me outside of that system, outside of what is humanity, to know that my own body deserved a certain kind of care so that when I entered into that space with my sister I was also capable of of offering it to her. And I think that that that's, I mean, I I think that, and I'm saying this all not, not imagining for one second that it's going to be easy for us to do what we're going to need to do. And there have been plenty of people who throughout time have done it. I think of Asata Shakur. She's done it and was forced into it, in a way. And in some ways, you know, I don't know how I will will make my choices about when to not participate, or how to not participate. And for me, the question, though, that is difficult is, how will I not be complicit?
0: Also, this this troubling of the word human, I, I really connect to. Because it feels also connected to your, your um, skepticism of goodness. Because if we think of the word inhuman, which means somebody's bad, and that being humane is, is being good, it feels like there's a whole lot baked into the dynamic of human versus non-human that isn't very examined, that's just assumed.
1: Well, and that there is anything like goodness. You know, I, I feel very lucky that, I mean, I know what it means to break the law. I know what it means to add incorrectly. But in, in Mojave culture, and I've talked a little bit about this, but we had one of our most powerful beings, uh, Pachacarajay, who uh, our mountain was crooked. It's this. It's our creation mountain. It's got these boulder, beautiful boulder granites. That from a distance from here, if I look out the door north, I see it and it looks like a zigzag. But as you get closer, you realize there are these incredible boulder granites. But uh, the mountain looks slightly shifted. He was our most powerful being. He tried to move it, got it almost straight, and then dropped it. Mm. And for us, that means like there is no such thing as goodness. And if if there is anything, it's the fact simply that we were born Mojave. So we're, we're beyond goodness. We were born Mojave and there's a strength and a power in it. And we will make mistakes. And you make a mistake, what happens next? Well, you try to do the next thing that has a different kind of energy in it. Or you try to re- reorganize you know, what that energy is. And that to me is the biggest, one of the larger questions about what is goodness. And, and American goodness is for nobody it's meant for the us and the them what it's done for us in terms of violence like the way that america has uh, created these not just america i think it's westernism but it's created so many categories of violence as if violence is not a natural condition mm. and then so we have this we have this wild way of thinking about peacefulness like peaceful protest um, and that, and that that somehow is not connected to, uh, defending oneself. Like we're in a, we're in a state where, uh, brown and black and queer and trans and all of these other people, people in general, right? Like are not allowed to defend themselves. They have to be peaceful and get beaten down in the street. And it, it doesn't mean that that doesn't also have a power. And it doesn't mean that, that there's anything you know, I have no critique of, of folks who that's the way they want to act. And I also have a right to defend myself. Right. You know, I think something that's crazy for people is like my partner and I own guns. And and we have every right to. Uh, and whether that's to hunt or whether it's to defend ourselves. You know, and, and I think that we've held ourselves to this idea of goodness in a way that that um, in order for us to be good, we have to be passive, submissive, not speak, not speak back, uh, not pressure the system. We have to understand, well, justice will occur. Well, we just need to talk about it some more. Well, just bring me to a place of understanding, you know, um, make a good case for it. And it's like, no, like, we want to live. And if, if you want to live Life is such that you will fight for that life no matter what you have to do. This is a terrible analogy, but, you know, the, the same way, like you you put an animal in a, in a trap and it will leave its leg behind to get out of that trap, you know, which is a, a violent thing. Um, you know, I, I think, too, just about the very violence of any kind of life, to watch a, to watch a, a plant push up through the ground in the desert and to watch it incrementally try to live we say grow and we pretend grow has nothing to do with life but that is a violent to 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 burst a leaf you know to drag whatever water you can from this desert and burst out with a leaf that's a a kind of violence
0: in chinese medicine the the word for the energy of a of a seedling that's pushing through frozen ground is the same word for anger it's also the sound of shouting, like the the um, the way something so soft and tender can make its way through something that's completely hard and get to the surface.
1: Yeah, and and that's in us. Like, and anger is anger is the emotion I trust the most. And and what I mean by that is that for me, anger is anger requires so much of my attention that I am most sensual in those moments of anger it doesn't mean that like, you know, I kind of don't like lose my mind in it, but that's most important to lose my mind in it, to, to not have my mind pretending it knows more than what my body in that moment is, is sensual to what's happening. And, you know, and, and for me, that is something that very much American empire, uh, white what we might call white supremacy, but that's also becoming a kind of generic thing that I'm really worried about. Um, but Western culture has tried so hard to not uh, to dislocate us from our different sensualities, which are anger, which which are violence, as much as as those violences and angers also teach us about what is tender. you know, what is touch? Um,
0: yeah something that you evoke really well in post-colonial love poem is the connection between body and land or breaking down the distinction between human and the non-human. And I I wanted to ask you more about um, where words fit into this, where language fits into this connection between body and earth. Because you say in American Water Museum, you cannot drink poetry, And in one of your Tin House talks, you you talked about how when you're away from home, you're sought after as a poet and that your poetry has a certain currency in the world at large. But then when you return home to the reservation, people aren't as impressed at all with the poetry in and of itself. They want to know what the poetry does, what tangible actions it has. And you said you were talking about how to put your poetry more into the world, into action beyond the page. And I guess I wanted to hear about that. I know there were eight years between your two collections. I don't know if there's something manifest in your second collection that reflects that or if it's something not in the collection itself but some other activities around your poems that relate to this question of not being able to drink poetry.
1: I was in a conversation with uh, a, a gray wolf event that Kevin Young and um, Roy Guzman and uh, Khaled Matawa were in and uh, Khaled was mentioning thinking about the pleasure like that poetry is a pleasure and i I would agree with that and or I would agree with that if that feels so like hierarchical <laughs> like well I'm granting this as knowledge but when Colette's, you know, was framing this conversation that poetry was, was a pleasure, um, it began be- with Kevin, I think, quoting uh, Seamus Haney, who had said that poetry is a home. And I had said that, I don't know that poetry is a home. I believe it is one pathway home. And, you know, either to return me to home of some sort or to carry me to a home that doesn't exist yet. And I'm thinking about, you know, like, what is language? It was a gift, I think, from our creator. It's amazing, right? It's amazing that we have different languages and how we can't, how it's so difficult for us to understand that there is no hierarchical language the fact that people around this world have their own language and that it's we that speech i guess speech is what i'm talking about mm. speech is just uh it's impossible for me to understand and i realize it it's a gift it's a luck and i also realize that it's very physical it's another kind of touch so i can so this is an example I've used before. I, I feel like I, I just finished a l- really large grant. And so I feel like that's why I'm in example mode. <laughs> I think I've said here's an example like five times in this. I, I pardon that because it's I didn't notice. It's, it's not in my lexicon. It feels so side <laughs> but but something I would like to share. So this is not this is not an example. Something I would like to share. All
0: right.
1: Talk a little bit about this in relationship to language. I was leading a language conversation with between our elders and other uh, other adult learners, which is often an extremely tense emotional space because we have these these groups, these generations of adults who were very intentionally cut off from the language, and then we have these elders who had to watch that happen, and who now are in a position where they have something that they desperately need to give to these generations and there's a huge chasm many chasms that keep that from happening and so adult and elder learning engagements are are really emotional and we had an adult learner who said like was just kind of fed up in in this conversation was like listen I just need to be able to tell my son that I love him Mm -hmm. you know he was eight years old And, you know, our elders said, there's no, we don't have a word for love. There's no word for love. Um, And, you know, she, she was getting increasingly emotional and she's like, well, we have to be able to say something. It can't just be that, that we don't have love. And it's, of course, we know the sentiment or whatever the emotional condition of that is. So finally, one of the elders who, who was this, this adult, it was her aunt she said, well, what is it you want to tell him? And she said, and and she had no words. So, so the learner had no words. She like held her chest. She made some like gestures, like between like where her son might be standing next to her, where there was nobody there and like back to her chest. And she just, she was crying because like she'd reached a point where she felt failed by language. She felt uh, as like a failure in some ways to this language she felt it was like challenging what it means to be Mojave and who we are and and when she broke down our elders do what they do because they're they're not old people they're they're beyond that they're they're an energy that is who we are and so uh, among the few that were there they were like well you know, like okay, we know what that means. You want to say, "I would die for you." You want to say, "You are my eye." You want to say, "I'm going to be stingy with you." Mm. Of course, we have words for that. And so that was it. Was it was an interesting kind of moment, um, thinking about uh, about language and what it does. And and so that was like a. It was almost like a terrible meeting. And, you know, of course, but good things came from it. But everybody left with the, this additional wound in them. So later that evening, uh, this, this adult learner came to my home, to my mom's house. I, I was staying with my mom at that point. Um, I would drive to Phoenix and then come back and forth. But I was staying at my mother's. And so this, this woman came by and she's like, hey, can I do you think I can talk to your mom? And I was like, of course. But my mom can tell you if she can talk to you or not. So, you know, she came in and she talked with my mom. And she told my mom in a way that she wouldn't tell my elders but she told my mom she said uh because she's a little closer in age to my mom she said you know you know Bernadette my father never told me he loved me and she said my mother never told me she loved me and I don't want my son to grow up like that and she's like even when my father you know he he died of a heart attack she's like even when he was getting wheeled into the emergency room and we were there you know, by his bedside as they were pushing him up until the room where we couldn't follow him through. I kept telling him I loved him, I kept telling him I loved him and he still never said it back. Mm. And my mom said, my parents never told me they loved me. And she said, but what was he, like did he have any response? Like what, he said nothing and my mom's like, well, maybe he couldn't say because he was sick. And she's like, no, he was speaking. He just didn't tell me he loved me back. And, and she said, he just kept squeezing my hands. He just kept squeezing my hand and my wrist and my arm. And so my mom said, you know, that's how, that's how they tell us they love us, she said. and And because our language had been lost, we didn't have that word with us yet. And my mom was explaining, like, that's what her mother did and her grandmother is they pressed the body and that, you know, that that was something beyond any any word that could hold that. And so the next day we went to my elders and I, I went to my teacher, Hubert, and I was asking him about that. And he said, you know, I haven't heard that word in a long time, but it's kavanam. And it's the way we press the body when you're sick, when you're a baby. And so there was, there was a, a moment in that. And so we, we were able to bring Kavanam back into our language because it had been missing for I don't know how long. But just kind of that notion that that language is just one way. Speech is only it, Speech is only one language, I guess maybe I'll say. If language is this technology, speech is only one way of it. You know, print is only one way of it, and that it's not the body itself, right? It's, it's not the body. It's an estimation of the body. It's a wish of the body. It's a possibility of the body. It's the thing the body has done but doesn't mean it defines the body. And so for me, there's something about that power that our people know that speech can't carry everything and so to hold the body to hold the hand to press it to to feel it beneath you to remind it that you're there touching it and holding it and so for me like that is that's one of of the that's one of the like atmospheres of of language that i have been brought into and and raised with i think and so when I think of poetry, I always want to be like very attentive that I don't lean too much into the performance of it. Mm. And and I don't even mean the reading, like reading, right? Because I'll read, if I read poems sometimes about the brother, I can feel my brother in a way that I can barely stand up there. Like it's all I can do to perform it. I don't know what it would mean to break in it. I mean, recently I read a new essay and and I almost like let myself feel shame about it because I had to stop twice in the middle of it. And I think something that was really interesting about that is right now in this time of pandemic, I'm not up in the front of the room with a bunch of people in it. And so that performance has been stripped down in a way that I find myself so much more emotional in front of a computer screen. I do because too. Because it, it's me. Yeah. 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 And so you know I, and again i'm getting sideways as i often do going sideways on this conversation but but to me that's such an important relationship because when when settlers and linguists and ethnographers first came to Mojave and they did their little lexical vocabulary list and elicited things they asked us they asked our my ancestors how do you say love and they didn't have a word for it which was very natural because you know, and they tried to explain the concept to them, and they they had no word for it. And so the ways they wrote about us is that we didn't experience it right that we didn't feel it. And you know, and it makes sense to me, right that you have these these white ethnographers who've come in, we've already had the cavalry through, we've already had the military through these agno- ethnographers come in and are trying to tell us something that is about tenderness and care. and <laughs> I mean, I, I I would bet that we couldn't even imagine those people felt whatever it was they thought they were, they were telling us about. So, yeah. So that's a little bit of like, I think a constellation I carry with me constantly about language, about its physicality, uh, where it comes from and what poetry is in, in poetry, as much as I'm a very tiny part in whatever energy is of the world, I feel like the land imagined me. Right. Like the land imagined uh, a flesh person uh, and it it imagined it from its clay, from dirt. What an imagination. And, and then for me, like we, we've been told our creator also gave us language. And I feel like that was, that was the creator's way of giving us an imagination uh, so that we might make. And, and I feel like we've made beautiful things and, and we we're we've also made very, Horrible things.
0: When I was when I was thinking in preparing for the interview about this question of what poetry does and doesn't do, and you as a poet out in the world and you as a poet back at home, I came across this uh, quote by a Mexican poet, Roberto Yepes. It was actually tweeted by Natalie Center Zapico, and um, I don't even know if this is a question, but I just thought this quote was so great, and I wanted to read it. Uh, see if you had any thoughts. Viewing poetry in a time of crisis doesn't help put an end to the crisis. It only helps to make poetry, again, a possible solution, a praxis that can really mean something good for the culture it belongs to. He also says: Viewing poetry in a time of crisis puts the emphasis on the time of crisis, erases the fact that the institution of poetry is part of the crisis, that poetry is in a crisis itself. Times of crisis help poetry hide its own crisis. I think instead of thinking how poetry can help in a time of crisis, think how poetry has collaborated for the production of a crisis, how that production of a crisis makes a culture risk itself, and thus having to strengthen the strategies to perpetuate itself using the institution of crisis as an excuse to make poetry a possible measure to make ourselves forget we live in cultures that are dying cultures that want to kill well first of
1: all uh his book is incredible i don't know if you've read transnational battlefield i haven't oh so this i think this is from transnational battlefield um and it it might but he also this is where he moves. So it, this, it might be, uh, from something else, but I have a quote that I have a picture of. I'm trying to find it. I'm just looking through my phone. Yeah. So, okay. So this is okay. I, I just took a screenshot. I, I, my students and I are like have read him. So I had some, um, so, uh, about me in English, I am possessed by the most powerful revolutionary force in the world today, the anti-American spirit, but I am written and I write in English. I too sing America's shit. And so like, I mean, especially that, that idea of, uh, wanting to kill. (laughs) Um, so, I'll use this kind of I mean I I think he's also talking about something uh I think he's talking about something deeper that American poetry is not strong enough for. So I, I wanna say that first because I think the questions that 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 he's asking are are about everything. <laughs> They're about our lands and our lives and our languages. Mm. And, and I see the critique, of course, you know, of American poetry, poetry itself. Um, but I guess what that opens up and, and I had this conversation, you know, with my, my students when we were reading it and we read it with spring and all William class, William spring and all, which I think is another incredible critique. Um, and again, like, Critique—I don't know—we're always arguing about what critique means. Um, I have always thought critique is is an attention to, you know. I, I think the ways I write poems about the brother is because I love him, and because I it it is a love that that not only um, compels me to look and to touch with my eyes or my words, but it's. It's also one that I very intentionally do so that I remember I love him. Mm. And so I think it's the critique of American poetry is really important. I think it's really easy to say American poetry is vibrant. It is all of these things. Um, it's also very much Twitter. You know, um, it's it's if we let it be, right? Like if we let it be, um, Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 trying to take time with the the piece you read, and I'm also thinking about uh, his book in general. And I guess, I guess one of the important uh, one of the important stakes he places before us or reminds us about is that I think anything we anything we love and anything we do must we also must question it in terms of our intentions and in terms of our capacities to understand it and and a big question is like how do we not waste it and I guess that's the thing that a lot of us are thinking right now in this time it's a time of reset if we want it to be You know, it's a time of even if we don't know how to do it, like, you know, like, for example, abolition is on everybody's minds. Even though a lot of people can't imagine it, however, there it has been imagined and it is being done. You know how. However, at the same time, if we're going to look only in what is, quote, the mainstream, of course, we're not going to find it there. Right you can't perform abolition. I mean, there are like a million conversations happening right now about it that do feel performative, like um, racial justice right now. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, how many schools are out there. I think there was a, quote, racial justice panel at my school that had a thousand and some digital vis- visitors. And then they they did that. It's they marked the box that's very close to empathy, which is racial awareness. And then they move on and do what? Um, and to me, I mean, there are some power structures, of course, that Yepes is, uh, is pressuring. But I think for me, what, what I felt a lot of is the return to myself of, of what do I think poetry does? What, what, what is my investment in it? versus what do I think it offers outside of myself and and there's a way that this might be I can probably be more succinct looking through this end Uh, American poetry is many things many wonderful lucky beautiful things it also has it also creates a condition for the for our egos to be the only thing present sometimes and that's something i have i try really hard to fight is how can i be in a room without having to be the center of it but to let language decenter it in a certain way um, how do i not let poetry be a currency of of celebrity uh, of performance of outrage, of, um, of fast time? How can I let it be something that feels like a disruption of what I thought I could do so that I might find what I didn't even know I could do? And there's a way that, um, I mean, for me, right, like this is maybe an example of that. I know I'm doing a poor job of addressing this. And I, and I think some of it is, is because uh, Transnational Battlefield and some of, some of their work is, it's saying the thing that, not that many of us have been afraid to say, but that, that we hadn't dislocated ourselves enough that we could possibly say it, mm-hmm. right? Because you love a thousand likes. You love... You know, you, you like to know people are reading your work, um, but what's been what's been really beautiful about this moment and this this virtual world? And there are so many problems with the virtual world, right? Like we we don't often think about what the what are the levels of extraction are for us to have this technology, or that when we throw our technologies away. They go to Ghana and poison everybody who has to take them apart. Um but but yeah, I think there's something about this like virtual space that holds us accountable to ourselves and how we engage. Like you can't you cannot fucking perform in this space. <laughs> I mean, I've seen virtual performances. I've watched my friends do this, my partner, you know, does performative art and has done this, but I'm sitting in a room by myself and in some ways like I realize like the discomfort I have in a lot of moments or I feel like, you know what, Natalie, like quit pretending, you know, something, you know, like, or yeah, there's a certain kind of uh, care I want to have with language in this space that feels really, really important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I guess for me, and this is what transnational battlefield and that quote, do to me is it I just want to be careful and I don't mean careful as in not making a mistake but I mean I want to be careful in recognizing that language can be very dangerous that not being attentive to language can be very dangerous and that if I if I can come to it with a kind of intention and I can treat it like a kind of practice versus a product or a task that I have to do. If I can, if I can be who I am with you here and who I am on the page, the way I am with my partner or the way I move through a day in all it's like difficulty or ease or joy or worry, then, then I, that's, that's what I want poetry to be to me like I want it to be another way of touch. Like I say, touching myself or or someone I love or someone I don't know. And that's really hard because it's also what I do. It's also in some ways my job. Um, And so, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that's also one of the reasons why the ways you're having these conversations, because my partner really loves loves the show and is always listening to it and asking me about things. Um, in fact, she and I were with the Joe Sacco, we were really going at it. Um, (laughs) but like, how do we create that space that, that we believe is the reason why we came to poetry? Like how do we keep the space in between me writing and what meant? And then where the poem ends up happening in font or book or text how do we keep that space in between, which is unknown, which is uh, fallibility of language, fallibility of imagination, and also the complete possibility of it? So I guess if anything, thinking of the quote you read, thinking of the, the, the larger work of Transnational Battlefield, I think that's what, it, that's what it is doing. It's saying, like, don't make this easy ever don't take like and i don't mean take for granted but don't assume um this is what success is and in some way that was like a straightforward critique of poetry yes as the institution and then of course what it is
0: i w- i want to return to and end with love and a discussion of love um to circle back to the beginning you've you've said It's possible any word is a myth, a small myth, a large myth. A word is never what it is, but a desire for the thing to be, either for understanding or for want or for remembering. And in your first collection, you use myth as a way to engage with your brother, who at one point is Icarus, and at another point he's Judas, and many times he's an Aztec god. But the collection, your first collection, ends with poems to an unnamed beloved which seems to be more of the focus of post-colonial love poem. Yes, your brother returns, and yes, there are poems that were part of a letter correspondence with the poet Ada Limon, but often you're addressing the beloved without the beloved being named. And I want to read a couple of things you've said about love and see if they spark any thoughts for you. The first is, The love poem is maybe at war with the colonial state. The second is, A dangerous way of thinking is that we love as resistance. I understand that, but I refuse to let my love be only that. I'm not loving against America or even in spite of it. I'm loving because I was made to love. Love was made for me. And The third quote is, In order for me to be possible, I have to create conditions in which love is always possible.
1: Love, huh? (laughs)
0: love i know the love the 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 word that has no mojave word
1: yeah i use the word love a lot i know it's something like poetically you know at least when i was younger people were always telling me oh well you don't you know what do you mean by love and
0: Well, I know you you use you say you use the word hand a lot, also. But the word that leapt out to me that you that I noticed repeating itself a lot was hip.
1: The hip, love, desire. um, I think the ways I've learned love, you know. And I've mentioned this before. And you know, my great grandmother was uh, was the first person I lost in a way that I knew what loss was Um, and by that I don't mean loss yes I mean loss absent she was gone I remember walking into her room the next day and her her literal physical absence to see her not not in her bed Um, you know to see like the her sheets folded and um, and just what I knew in that moment, yes, I knew she was gone. Yes, I knew she was absent. And then I also kn- knew something more of myself. And, and by that, like to me, that is what love and loss are. I mean, we've been taught to not be selfish. But I think... I think any life has to be selfish and not in the ways that we've, we've heard about selfishness as in, you're not thinking about someone else, but shouldn't I be selfish if I want to live? And in America, you have to be so fucking selfish to make it through any day to be yourself in a day to, to come from the reservation, which is where I'm at now. It's where I'm talking to you from for me to get through a day here is I have to be very selfish. And some of that is, is a reminder of of many things that, that I am loved that I can love. But when I think about, and so for me, like the reason why I'm bringing her up is because she was the first person who taught me that I did love and I learned it when she was gone. I learned it. It's not that I didn't feel things like it, but when she was gone, I, my body understood what love was, and so love in that way was, was not her her literal absence, but it was the way that that my body suddenly knew what absence was, and that was that was love, and and so. That and like thinking about desire, which I feel like I, I very much learned from her and from the ways I, I took care of her and the ways I tended to her, the ways I touched her because she was a double amputee. She, uh, you know, she required uh, insulin shots, uh, she had wounds, you know, we had to be very careful with. She, you know, small things like giving her her cup, she had this giant blue cup with a little plastic straw and like just watching the way sometimes I missed her mouth and her mouth would try to find that that was desire. Um, and you know, I, and I've, I've talked about this before, but she would ask me to rub her legs, which were not there. And that I, that I did it for her. I didn't question her. I didn't understand it, but I don't know that there was a truer touch than me touching what was not there of her legs for her because they ached. And so for me to, to rummage my hands, to move my hands in those sheets where nothing was. Um, and so the hip for me is, I think that's the primary doorway for me of desire and and that I felt desire beyond any desire, beyond any love, like sexual or platonic. There with my great grandmother, touching her hip, uh, learning to bathe her, and and so for me, those those images are the the foundational images. It's as foundational as my 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 river, you know, my my desert. Um, And I think about that, right? Like if I could touch everybody I touch, the ways that I touched her with such, again, not carefulness, but, but care, you know, in ways that I still remember, you know, thinking about, about some of those touches and that what they were was me, me existing. And, and so I think that's something I think a lot about love. Like we, we, We pretend we can offer it and we pretend it's ours to give. And and it's not that those things don't happen, but I think what is for me, the question or the inquiry or the the wonder, I guess, the wonder about it is that it's the way I exist. The ways I touch people is the way I exist. And it doesn't mean I don't cause people pain or have not, or cause people pleasure or have not. It just means that that's the kind of love I'm imagining. And so it has been a kind of, uh, it's a, you know, like for example, it's not different than the ways I I say that, that my land and my desert, uh, that I am one of, of my desert's pleasures, that when our creator made us, he created something that was full of energy and, and, like that that was a pleasure for 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 the creator. And to think about that is that we weren't imagined of nothing. Like we were built of clay that already existed. We were built of clay and water and like so to think of this like reorganizations of energy and that that love is something like that, you know, the conversation I had with Ada was very much I wanted to speak to Ada the way I feel about Ada and when I feel about Ada it's not different than the way I feel about my lover my partner like those feelings are are the same except we have learned to define the touches of those as different and and I'm you know and and so there's a way that I've tried to always move backward toward what I what I became through my relationship with my great grandmother and what a generosity that was, you know, to care for her. I recently when right before the, the um, right before the pandemic started, um, you know, and so this is similar because you had mentioned like to love against the colonial state. So, So my, that my grandmother was sick. With diabetes, that's what killed her. That's what put her in that bed. Um, you know, I never knew her when she had legs. But my mother, right before the pandemic, uh, like we came back to my reservation in February because my mother had a diabetic ulcer and it went into her bone, and uh her body went septic. So she had a bone infection, her body went septic. They were thinking they might have to amputate her leg. And so she was scared. Everybody was worried. The pandemic was setting in, and so we came back to to tend to her. And I I remember, um, I remember my body. So when I, it's like a, it's something that will never leave me. The same way some of my moments with my great grandmother will never leave me. We were there, and uh, we have a very poor healthcare system, so we couldn't get anybody to come to the house. Um, you know, they were trying to, at that point, tell me I couldn't be in the room. And, you know, there's a time when we were, like, other people have been outside the window to make sure things were going well. And my mother's, you know, in some ways, natives, hobbies we were taught not, not to ask questions. So often she just let them do without critiquing them or asking for what she needed. But, you know, we wanted to bring her home. And so the nurse was like, you have to learn the debridement you know you have to i'm going to teach you how to clean this wound and debridement is very vi- violent right you're cutting away like it's cutting it's in and, and but i remember being there and thinking about that and then having to do that for the first time to my mother and i was i mean i was saying this over and over again and i i mentioned it just in a written interview once but I was, what I had to tell myself the whole time that I was doing this is that, you know, like, this is lucky. This is, you know, one way I'm loving my mother. Um, this is, and, and again, like, when I, when I think of being against the colonial state, like, you know, natives have diabetes for a reason. My mother had shitty health care for a reason. My, my great grandmother had shitty health care for a reason. You know, and they were like, very quickly, like, we'll just cut your mom's leg off. And it was like, no, like, I'm in a fight for my, you know, fight for my mother. But as that was happening, it was like, I had to tell myself, I'm like, you have language. Like, this is what you do. It has a power, you know, it has a power. And this is more important than any poetry or poem you might write, but use it right now. And so I I had to tell myself as I was doing that, like, this is lucky, this is my mother's body this is me touching her. This is, this is what, uh, this is something I can offer her and and her body is offering me this. And, and this disease wants to live like, like anything else wants to live the same way I want to live the same way my mother wants to live in the same way that, that I want her to live. And, and so like, I, I imagine myself even talking to, to the wound, you know, like I, here you are and here I am and now I'm touching you and, and, um, yeah. And this is an energy we share and, you know, we're doing this together and I'm going to let you go. And just, you know, it, it was, a it was just like those, those are the moments, right. That say poetry is a lucky, lucky place I've been able to arrive at and even luckier that I've been received there. Right. That like, like small things to large things, like, like being able to meet you through poetry and, and being able to meet those people. Like some of, some of my best friends I've met through poetry. And then there's the lucky ways of just knowing like, yes, my book's in conversation with people. It means something to people. And it's, it's important for me to remember also that it's just one way. It's one lucky way I can move through a day I can like that I could tend to my mother, and in some ways, it was, you know, not a not a not a um, great poem, but that was the way that I touched her. That was a that was poetry. It's the same way I craft something on a page, Mm. and so, you know, for me, those are the moments when I don't have to, you know, yes, I'm using English, but I don't have to do this against America. I don't have to prove myself to america and and that's hard to do right and and sometimes i do i engage it but for me like that painful moment which for me again was was very selfish right because i can't imagine losing my mother um and then i didn't want her to be in pain and then you know but but that's a moment where i i realize again sometimes for the first time sometimes just to return myself to it that you know, yeah, we do find joy against these things. I grew up on a reservation. I know what it means to to live despite. And then I also realized the importance of of not subscribing to going through this nation to be happy. And I guess that's some of, of what I'm thinking about when we were talking about participation in that. I, I mean, yes, this is a nation I do think there are other iterations of ways we can live together, um, not as even one, but very differently to live together. And so the ways I'm trying to build my poems right now or to use poetry to help me think is that I'm, I'm not asking the state for permission. I'm not asking for the state to see me or to love me or to tell me that I'm good and some of that involves trying to build spaces or offer spaces or find spaces where that happens. Poetry sometimes is that. Um, and then as you know, yep, said, sometimes it's not that. um, yeah. And I've, I've gone a little sideways with that, but, but I, you know, yeah, that's how I feel. That's, I mean, I guess that's always one of my big questions with it is, um, you know our natural conditions were pleasure our natural conditions were care and tenderness and not with not without violence i think violence has always been here i think there i think violence is many different things and yet now that we are here under these different occupations um I don't think, for example, democracy is my savior. And I don't know that democracy has a place for me. I think I've learned to, you know, Fred Moten talks about this, right? Like we learn, we, we adapt, we learn to move within it, um, which maybe sometimes feels subversive to us and other times doesn't. But yeah, I, I want to find ways to to move in language and outside of those things without pretending that that I could ever be their version of what they think life is, which is a human. Um, and again, as I said before, I don't know what I'm willing to sacrifice for that to happen. Um, that's, that's, I guess the, the big pandemic question for me the rest of the time. So.
0: Could, could we go out with, uh, one of your letter poems from to Ada Limon uh, from the desire field and, And then also um, a poem that Rachel Eliza Griffiths suggests is also a love poem despite its title, Grief Work.
1: So these poems with Ada were the first poems where I actually addressed my anxiety, um, partly because I was speaking to a beloved, not an audience or not even a page. So from the desire field, I don't call it sleep anymore. I'll risk losing something new instead, like you lost your rose and moon, shook it loose. But sometimes when I get my horns in a thing, a wonder, a grief, or a line of her, it is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from, despite my trembling. Let me call my anxiety desire, then. Let me call it a garden. Maybe this is what Lorca meant when he said, Verde, que te quiero verde. Because when the shade of night comes, I am a field of it, of any worry ready to flower in my chest. My mind in the dark is una bestia, unfocused, hot, and if not yoked to exhaustion beneath the hip and plow of my lover, then I am another night wandering the desire-filled Bewildered in its low green glow, belling the meadow between midnight and morning. Insomnia is like spring that way, surprising and many petaled, the kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow. I am struck in the witched hours of want. I want her green life, her inside me in a green hour I can't stop. Green vein in her throat, green wing in my mouth, green thorn in my eye. I want her like a river goes, bending, green, moving, green, moving. Fast as that, this is how it happens. Soyuna una sonambula. And even though you said today you felt better, And it is so late in this poem. Is it okay to be clear to say, I don't feel good? To ask you to tell me a story about the sweet grass you planted and tell it again or again until I can smell its sweet smoke. Leave this thrashed field and be smooth. And then, and this... I'm, this poem in some ways is very much like Eliza Ra- Rachel Eliza I call her Eliza Rachel Eliza is very much in this poem and we begin in talking about about grief, uh, the grief she she suffers um, and you know the grief she carries and uh, with the loss of her mother and just thinking about uh, yeah about the love, what love and desire are in the midst of uh, trying to hold a grief with somebody. Grief Work Why not now go toward the things I love? I have walked slow in the garden of her, gazed the black flower dilating her animal eye. I give up my sorrows the way a bull gives its horns, astonished and wishing there is rest in the body's softest parts. Like Jacob's angel, I touched the garnet of her hip and she knew my name and I knew hers. It was Auxochromo, it was Chromophoro, it was Eliza. When the eyes and lips are brushed with honey, what is seen and said will never be the same. So why not take the apple in your mouth in flames and pieces straight from the knife's sharp edge? Achilles chased Hector on the walls of Ilium three times. How long must I circle the high gate between her hip and knee to solve the red-gold geometry of her thigh? Again the gods put their large hands in me, move me, break my heart like a clay jug of wine, loosen a beast from some dark long depth. My melancholy is hoofed, I, the terrible beautiful lampone, a shining devour horse tethered at the bronze manger of her collarbones. I do my grief work with her body labor to make the emerald tigers in her throat leap, lead them burning green to drink from the deep violet jetting her breast. We go where there is love, to the river on our knees beneath the sweet water. I pull her under four times until we are rivered, we are rearranged. I wash the silk and silt of her from my hands. Now who I come to, I come clean to, I come good to.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show today, Natalie.
1: No, gracias for having me and for the time and you know generosity to to just wander alongside you.
0: Yeah, I could have done two more hours. I know we're going like it's already a marathon, but I, <laughs> we'll have to save yeah. it for another visit.
1: Uh, this is my my elder Mojave. Uh, time so uh yeah i hope (laughs) i I hope it's not too difficult to to edit me here and there no 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 um, it's
0: actually more difficult to skip over so many questions that i'll leave unasked for today and and uh imagine a a a future encounter together
1: yeah for sure yeah again gracias david i i really appreciate and i way outside of me just like this is such a a wonderful like field that you've offered that you know we all have the the luck to move in and just listen and it feels like a whole different time that you oh, you've altered you. for us so I appreciate that
0: yeah
1: I'm wishing you and your beloveds uh, love and health and um, and yeah we'll talk soon
0: we were talking today to the poet Natalie Diaz the author of postcolonial love poem from Grey Wolf you've been listening to Between the Covers I'm David Naiman your host <laughs> Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Natalie Diaz contributes a reading from and a discussion of Jorge Luis Borges's Book of Imaginary Beings. This joins bonus audio from Mickey Finney, John Keane. Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore, C.A. Conrad, N.K. Jemisin, Ted Chang, and many more. To learn about subscribing to the bonus audio or other potential benefits of becoming a listener-supporter of Between the Covers, head over to patreon.com slash betweenthecovers. Or, if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.